Hi, this is Ron Crawford, and welcome to episode number 15 of the Natural Leader Podcast, brought to you by Unleashed Potential Consulting, where we explore the challenges and benefits of authentic and inclusive servant leadership. My guest today is Dave Maoni. Dave is a lifetime resident of Endicott here in the central New York area. In 1978, he co-founded The Night Shift, a commercial janitorial company. He graduated from Cornell in 1985 and is currently Vice President of Core America, a national cleaning consulting company headquartered in Vestal, New York. In the summer, Dave enjoys cooking, fly fishing, and golf. In the winter, he keeps busy in several adult hockey leagues and traveling for business to warmer climates. Dave is married and has three adult kids. I first met Dave through our mutual interest of playing hockey and have over the years I've had many interactions with him, both on the ice and off. Dave is very active in the local community and mentoring and coaching business owners and entrepreneurs, and has told me at this point in his career, he is mostly focused on helping others to be successful. I know that we will learn a lot from Dave today. So welcome to the podcast, Dave, and thank you for taking the time to join me. Well, thank you for the very nice introduction, Ron. I didn't realize you knew that much about me, but thank you. That was that was very nice. All those uh, sessions after hockey have uh, have filled me in on all the information about you. So yeah, thanks thanks for being here. Sure. So uh, to kick things off, I don't know if if people noticed in the intro or not, but uh, you know you started your business seven years before you you graduated for from Cornell. How old were you? Well, we started in early 1978, so I was not quite 16 years. I was 15 years old. And we started a small cleaning company in a, in a bank on the north side of Endicott, which at that time was called the Bank of New York. It is now, I believe, a podiatrist office behind <laughs> Rossi's Market on Oak Hill Avenue. Do you I still have the contract there? We do not. Oh. We, I drive by the building often, and it's nice to see. I, I have stopped in there from time to time just to look around. The building's a little different. The drive-through window's gone from the bank, but. Still, the building's still there and it brings back memories. It's it's not too far from where I live. So I see it many times, maybe five or 10 times a week. I drive by cool. the building where we began our our business. So why, why don't you uh, take a moment and kind of tell us about the story of that, how it got started, you know, what, uh, what some of the early focuses and priorities were, maybe challenges. Uh, sure. Well, my, my older brother at the time was about five years older, was was cleaning uh, several local area, several area locations for another cleaning company. And he used to tell me how, how none of the people that was working with him were supervised or very well trained. And he would tell me, yeah, we could start our own business. And I'd say, hey, Tom, you're, you're 17 and I'm 12. So I don't know about starting a business, but several years later, he was still cleaning for this janitorial company. And we happened to have an opportunity where I heard the mother of one of my baseball teammates talking about this particular bank on the north side where she worked. And I ran back and told my brother, I said, they're unhappy with their cleaning. Here's an opportunity. And one thing led to another. And we started cleaning this bank as two young high school kids in, uh, in West Endicott. So we lived in West Endicott on Wendell Street. And I would get a ride or ride my bike up to the bank every night, clean it. And that's how we got started. So before too long, the 
local, there was four or five branches of the Bank of New York at the time. And we expanded into a couple of the other locations. Um, so we were off and running with this little business in high school. So how long did it take before you were adding staff and, and growing? I would say within the first year or two, we started hiring, as you might imagine, high school kids would do, <laughs> our friends and relatives and sister. I, I, I'm one of five in our family. So we put our old, I have an older sister and two younger sisters. We put them to work. Um, they no longer work with us, but this was just temporary. Most of my friends in high school, if you ever talk with them, they'll they'll laugh and tell you funny stories about working at, at the early, uh, at the time was called my only janitorial service. But as, as this became the night shift, the first few years of growth, many of my high school friends and my brother's friends worked with us. And there's a lot of funny stories about 16 to 18 year old kids cleaning an office building that, that are uh, comical and amusing, some of them. <laughs> Very harmless, but funny. So what were some of the early challenges of that, if you can remember that far back, of you know really having that responsibility, especially at such a young age? I mean, it, obviously you graduated from Cornell, so at some point then you, you were going to school too, but what were some of the, uh, the, the challenges of pulling that all together? Well, back at the time, the janitorial industry was not very technical, there wasn't very much, you know, we had no online as we do now. There weren't many resources to find out how do we do things? How do we learn? How do we grow? How do we, what kind of equipment are out there? So we would utilize a couple of the janitorial supply houses for this information. And naturally they wanted to sell us supplies. So I would say one of the roadblocks was to growth was how do we fund this? We're from a middle-class family and five of us. So it's not like we had tons of money to throw around, but um, we got the basics when we raided my, my mother's, I think our first job, we raided my mother's broom closet and took her vacuum cleaner, a can of Windex and some scrubbing bubbles and off we went. So it was a, a small, a small startup expense, I would say at the time, but as we grew, trying to get some of the knowledge to take on some, some bigger jobs that as now that we look back, they weren't all that big jobs that we were thinking about taking to expand our business at the time, weren't all that big as we look back at it. But, you know, when you're a young kid, brand new, you feel like it's, it's, a, it's a big undertaking. So I would say not, gaining a knowledge base was a little bit of a, of a challenge. Um, learning to trust that the employees and friends that we put into the locations to clean would do a great job, would lock the doors when they're done, would not lose your keys, would, would not cause any damage to the buildings. So anything you might imagine where you send employees into a building after hours were things that we had to deal with on a, on a regular basis. So we had occasions early where a key would break off in the door at midnight. And, and then how do, we, how do we get in touch with a customer before morning or we had one, one time in downtown Binghamton, and an employee left the key in the door of the bank while he ran out to turn out to grab a garbage bag. Somebody stole the keys out of the door. So we're on the middle of Court Street in a bank at midnight and afraid to leave. So we, I spent that night in the bank 
waiting for the morning staff to come in. I was my own security guard. So <laughs> uh, that's uh, things like that, the unexpected little things that come up. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly in, in my current role, especially, I talk to a lot of business owners that, that talk about a lot of those different challenges. And, and so logistically, yeah, you have a lot of those um, kind of operational issues of, uh, you know, keys breaking off in, the, in locks and things like that. But what were some of the priorities? What, what do you remember in terms of how you engaged with the employees? I mean, especially in an interesting challenge early on that you had a lot of friends and, and relatives, but what would you say were some of your um, emerging or your evolving leadership skills in that? How did you, how did you impress on people the importance of a quality job and, and a safe job and, and things like that in those early years? I think that leadership question, the, the word leadership is, is probably the, the most important uh, word in, in that question you just asked, especially in a service industry such as ours. You know, my brother and I recognized very early that you, we can't do all the cleaning. And as you grow, you certainly that applies even more and more. So in the, in the early days where my brother and I did all the cleaning, there wasn't much leadership needed. We'd go in, do the job that we knew was adequate for customer satisfaction, and then go home and, and sleep easy. But as you start adding employees, how do you go home and go to sleep knowing that your name, if, if somebody screws up at a bank and doesn't do a proper job with the cleaning, the bank manager or the business manager that hired Dave or his brother are they're upset with me, not with the cleaner. So that takes a mental position that you, you have to realize, you as the leader have to realize that you, you have to impart the same level of care that you have to your employees. And naturally they're not the owners, the employees aren't the owners. So they may never have the same level of care. But we realized very early that we have to treat this business and though sweeping and mopping might not feel very important, we have we we always realize that that that's what we do. So we would really try to impart the importance to our employees that though it, it seems um, unimportant to pick up a piece of paper that a teller may have missed a garbage can, and um, there's a spot on the glass door where a fingerprint was it may seem unimportant that it has to be perfect or if they miss it, you know, what, what harm is going to be done if I miss a streak on a door? Well, if we're, if we're in the business of removing the streak on the door, that it, it is important. So we, we always treated our employees with that, with that, um, that knowledge that what they did was important to us, important to them and important to the client. So I think if you look at it as uh, an approach where, the employee could take some pride in what they do and that what they do is appreciated, they may come to work with a little different attitude every day. So um, I think that was the number one and, and the, the, the earliest aspect of leadership was just to impart the importance of what we're doing out there in, in the seemingly low visibility, you might say unimportant business, but something that has an impact on all the employees that come in the next day. 
and spend eight or 10 hours at that location. So yeah, thanks for that. I, I, I'm going to come back around to that again, because uh, a lot of what you just talked about there in terms of your early priorities of giving people a sense of of meaning and importance and recognition, and especially the importance of the, the job that they do, no matter what the, the nature of it is, if it's uh, a menial task, if you will. Uh, I think that's something that a lot of companies are really struggling with today. And it's a, it's a, it's a major priority now for companies to, to start focusing on that and get that right, because uh, otherwise they're just not gonna attract and retain to people. So we'll, we'll come back around to that. But before we get off the early years, um, I'm interested, uh, it sounds like obviously your brother was an influence to you uh, in terms of starting out. Did you have any other early leadership influence or, or mentors or, or just people that you looked up to uh, in the industry or, or around you that really kind of helped shape your leadership perspective and style? Hmm, that's a really great question. My, my brother and my father were very influential. My father's a people person. He, he was a salesman, insurance salesman. And back in his day, the, the insurance salesman would collect the debit from the, the policyholders. So his job was to not only sell insurance policies, but to go and collect the premiums from his clients. So you could say he's a people person. I'm a lot like him, I'm told. And he he was a man um, that that was very warm with, with people. I'm, I'm a middle child, so I consider myself very easy to talk to. And uh, yeah, I'm not gonna get too much into the middle child thing, but I'm, I'm just a lot like my dad where, where um, it's easy for me to talk with people, including employees and customers. So he was a big influence. I, I think I'm a lot like him. My brother is is a, a driven a driven guy and a fantastic older brother. So if you don't have an older brother, I recommend you get one because he's uh, <laughs> he's been great. Um, but then also I, I spent a lot of time listening to, believe it or not, Zig Ziglar when I was a kid, who's a guy who's all about treating people. You can get anything you want out of life if you just help enough, enough other people get what they want. So that was Zig's mantra. Um, I listened to Zig a lot when I was driving cassette, if you remember cassette tapes and, yeah. and such. So, <laughs> um, so that was, I would say Zig Ziglar was, was big, but um, that's probably it. We learned a lot from if you remember the early days of the night shift, the radio commercials we came out with, with oh, a guy yeah. with a big voice. Yeah. Well, he he was an influence to my brother, more to my brother than to myself. He, he was an instructor at Cornell University. And he, that was his voice. He had an ad agency in Ithaca. And he's also the guy that coined the phrase, Ithaca is gorgeous. Which oh, you've really? probably seen on, yeah. Oh yeah, that's an iconic statement. Yeah, he, he came up with that slogan and the logo, and he gave it to Ithaca for free. He never made money on that. Wow, really? And it's still, it's still highly used today. There's a cult of people. They, they put Ithaca's gorgeous shirts on, and they send pictures from all over the world with that shirt on. And <laughs> Howard, Howard's gone. His name was Howard Kogan, and he's gone now, but he had quite a collection of fan mail with photographs from all over the world, the Great Wall of China and 
anywhere you can imagine. And people had that shirt, Ithaca is gorgeous. <laughs> Excuse me. So he was he was influential with us. He he helped us name our company and and uh, just a, a really great guy. So we miss Howard Kogan. He he was um, he was special to us. Um, so those were some early influences, I would say. Great. Yeah, I, I love when I do these things and I learn something new. I certainly didn't know that that voice from your early commercials, which I remember very well, Tony and Dave yep. Maoni at the night shift. Yep. Uh, I did not know that he was the inventor of this. It is gorgeous. That's uh, yep. that's and cool. If, if you Google him, Howard Kogan, C-O-G-A-N, you could see uh, people always asking, what's that guy look like? What, he looks like a little Santa Claus. He was about five <laughs> foot two. 252 and the nicest most jovial guy you ever met and we miss howard he was a good guy but yeah he he was ithaca is gorgeous so all right cool well so um you know i'm i'm not a math major but i i i think i calculated that the business has been you know from those humble beginnings in place for 44 years so that's uh that's quite a bit of staying power i also know that in those times um, obviously, nobody does something for 44 years without some uh, some ups and, and certainly some downs. So what were some of the the low points or some of the challenge points that are especially, um, you know, memorable or sometimes you don't try to remember those things, but, uh, you know, that there might be a lesson in, especially from the standpoint of, of leading through those challenges? Hmm. You try to forget. Why do you make me think about all things that I put out of my mind? No, well, because that's, that's what a lot of people are struggling with right now is, is they're struggling with the challenges and they're looking for, for uh, good ideas of how to get through. Well, I, I would say that one of the things that helps me through all of our challenges that we've had through the years would be um, I, I have a couple things that I believe in that I'm very good at. Um, I'm very good at keeping myself within the, um, I'm keeping myself from getting too excited or up or down. So for example, I, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about something that I can't control. That's something I try to do in my day-to-day -day life. If, if I can't control something, I'm not going to worry. Well, I see people worrying about the weather and checking the weather 80 times a day and, and losing sleep over what weather is going to do. You, you can't change it. If you can't, that's just a simple example, by the way. Yep, but if yep. you can't change something, I, I won't spend much, much time and energy worrying about it. Another thing, another tenant that I have is um, that I, I, I realize this is a very small community we're in. So if, if I had a client over time, for example, that canceled our services for one reason or another, perhaps they got a better price, perhaps they, they just didn't like us. Perhaps we did something wrong and screwed up, left the door open, which happens very rarely, but it, 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 it may have happened from time to time. So I, I realized that you can't get mad at these folks. And if, if somebody says, Dave, this Friday is your last day, we polish the doorknobs on the way out of the building because whoever's coming in there next to clean, I want them to have a challenge to maintain the building like we did. I, I once lost an account um, and my client called me up. They were very happy with our service. They called me and said, Dave, we got a price. It's, it's so much lower. They told me the number of their price. And I, and I, I said, Lisa, listen, 
let's do the math. Our business is all labor. If, if, you're, if this price is this much lower, let's look at the minimum wage. We, we backed out and, and the number of hours for their building was so incongruent with what they needed to clean their building. And, and she knew it, but she's, well, I, I, it doesn't make sense, but the price is so low, I, got, I have to go. So they fired us. On the third day of the new company's tenure, I called my now ex-client just to see how they were doing and if I could help out in any way. And, and I got her answering machine and I said, listen, I'm just calling, see how the new group is. If there's anything we could do, if they can't find a closet or, or, or some supplies, if there's any way I could help, let me know. She called me back within the hour and said, Dave, when could you guys start up again? Yeah. And I was shocked, but she was so turned off by the service she was receiving from this new company that, that she called me right back. Now, it, it's, I'm not saying that because I'm saying, oh, the night shift is so great, but it was just the way that I treated her on, on a low point. So you said, what was a low point? So I took a low point where I felt horrible losing that job, but then I went back to my tenant of saying, you know what, it's a small community, treat people right all the time. And I made a call to her. My call wasn't to get the job back. It was just, uh, it was a goodwill. We appreciated your business and we ended up getting the job back. So I think, I think when you do come up with some adversities, you, you have to keep them in focus, keep your, your theme and your goals and the way you treat people in focus all the time and, and try not to get mad. And sometimes you could turn some of your um, angry fans into some of your most raving fans. So uh, that was a low point when you, it's a low point whenever you lose a job. We had another job where we had 25 employees, full-time employees on site. And a new purchase agent came in and fired us and brought in a new company. And somehow all 25 of my folks ended up on the new company's payroll, which I considered dirty pool. We went through hundreds of employees to come up with 25 good ones. Yeah. And this, this uh, purchasing agent felt like that was an ethical way. So that guy probably wanted to punch, <laughs> but you know, I didn't punch him. I didn't go to jail. I didn't, uh, but, but you know, that makes you feel as far as a low point, that makes you feel pretty lousy. You go through hundreds of employees to come up with 25 good ones and this one person's going to decide he wants to give a business to somebody else. And, and, uh, Oh, I, I didn't give him all your employees. I, I just opened up a meeting and all these people showed up. Right. So it was, uh, that was a low point, but you get yeah. through it. It's, um, interest, it, it's, it's interesting in your first example that, um, you know, a lot of the tenants of what we would characterize as, as good, customer service or, or even uh, customer relationship are actually really valid and appropriate leadership principles. Um, you know, essentially what you're talking about in that first example is, is basically a respect for that customer, regardless of what their perspective or position is with you. I mean, it's easy to, to deal with customers that are, you know, big clients, uh, a lot of money, easy to deal with, uh, no, no drama. You know, it's hard to deal with people that are a little higher maintenance, that are a little more demanding, that are constantly kind of seems to be playing games with you, you know, 
there's an analogy to that to leadership as well. I mean, um, customers are unique and different and people are unique and different. And in leadership situations, you're going to have some people that are just quiet and heads down and do their job and they're just reliable. And in some cases, you're going to have people that that need a little bit more um, maintenance. And we we tend as leaders to look at that as, as kind of a... Um, inappropriate or unnecessary investment that we have to make in those people to get what's what's done but in reality that's that's what you have to do you have to invest in some of those customers to keep them you have to invest in some of those people to keep them and i think it fundamentally starts with that acknowledgement that everybody's different and and you can't have a uh, a blanket kind of one one size fits all kind of approach to how you deal with them so that was a great example of that of how you know just committing to that value of saying, hey, when I have customers, this is somebody I've really appreciated and has been here for a while, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna re-engage with them from a, a almost a compassion standpoint. You know, I, I see this all the time, uh, especially in the current work environment where there's people that take an attitude that if somebody chooses to, to take a job with somebody else, it, it's what I call, it's the, uh, you're dead to me mentality how dare you leave me in my company and how dare you go work for somebody else and try to find something that you enjoy doing more, you know, don't ever come back to me. Don't come back here looking for a job. Right. The, the contrary to that, the, the, the other end of that is reaching out to somebody when they've started their new job and Hey, just checking in on you. How you liking things? How's it going? I hope everything's great. Right. Yeah. Um, that general philosophy and that general approach can be so impactful in the big picture and building respect and trust and, and connection with employees. So, Well, it, it definitely can be hurtful when an employee that you feel you've taught a lot to leaves you and goes somewhere else, whether or not it's in competition. You know, you hate to, you, you try to view them as loyal or having been loyal at one time and now they're they're not, but maybe it's not a loyalty issue. Maybe it's just for whatever reason. Uh, perhaps they're they're too stressed at one job, or they have a friend at another. So it's it's hard sometimes to to not be insulted or hurt by it. But you know, it's people are complex <laughs> organisms, and they do things for for different reasons. Um, so yeah, but but I want to touch base on one thing you said about sometimes you get clients or customers who are high maintenance, we've had occasion where to show some leadership for my employees, we have fired, you might say, a client. So, yeah. you know, sometimes you do as much as you can do for a client. Um, when we go in to do a cleaning estimate, for example, we assess our client's needs. So, Ron, if you asked me to come look at your office, I look around and when, when we do an assessment of our customers' needs, we one of the things that we look for is what level of service are they looking for? So for example, if you're shopping for a car and you come in and you're, you're looking at uh, 1981 Chevettes and then you expect to end up with a, a Ferrari, it's, it's not gonna happen at the same number. So if you tell me you want you know, a C level of service in your cleaning, and then we, we start providing service to you and you're calling our office every week because you're not getting that A plus service five days a week when maybe you're only paying us for two days a week, it's, it can be high maintenance. So we've had occasion where to show some leadership to my people doing the service, if they're taking abuse from a client, we will basically, you might say fire the client and 
and, and very nicely let them know that we don't feel we're a good fit to service them anymore. But again, you, you do it in a respectful way. You don't leave them hanging, give them some notice and, and treat them with respect so that maybe someday uh, they realize, okay, maybe I was being unreasonable. Yeah. So we, we try, you know, my personality is, I, I try to avoid conflict. It's a small town. And uh, my late great lawyer friend, John Dowd, who we all miss and love, he told me one time, one man's friend is another man's, uh, I'm not going to use an expletive, but, you know, you might look at a guy and say, what an, what an you know, and, and I, I said, hey, geez, he's my good friend. Let's pivot a little bit and, and talk about something that is really um, a leap forward, if you will, and maybe even is going to be a little bit more philosophical than operational per se, but um, you certainly are in an industry and in a, in a broader industry area where there are a lot of challenges in, in today's environment, in the, in the service industry. Um, lots of challenges in, in uh, finding and attracting people to work and then motivating and keeping people at work. And so what do, you, what do you see in the current trends and the current environment that are some of the biggest challenges and, and what do you feel are, are some of the approaches to, to how to deal with those, those challenges? People in, in service businesses right now are, are dealing with a problem of work shortage as a worker shortage. But, and that puts, that, puts us, that puts us owners in a position of having to accept some workers who we would not necessarily want to keep. And, and it gives you the choice between having a poor worker or no worker, which is a horrible position to be in if you're trying to provide great service, uh, whether it's food service, I know owners of restaurants who are washing dishes. And why can't we, why did we have dishwashers in the past or, or good janitorial candidates in the past or good painters or anything in the service, landscapers, roofers? Um, I, I don't know the reason for the shortages, but it, it certainly is a challenge. We now have, I have two or three folks in my office that their job is to recruit. So we're recruiting on all different, all different creative ways that we could find to get people in the door. But I think it's important what you do with them once you're in the door to try to make them feel like they're, they're at a job now that, that doesn't just see them as a commodity and, and values what they do on a daily basis. We talked a little bit about uh, how we like to treat and orient our employees when you, when you talked about our early days, but that certainly isn't just as important today and probably more so that we, we treat new employees with the respect of and, and trying to impart the importance of this job. People are really into the environment. And when you go to work every day in an office, that's an environment. You have to be there. Uh, eight or, I know there's a lot of remote work now, but folks in an office that utilize our services, their employees and customers and clients and friends are in that building eight, 10, 12, maybe more hours per day. So we are maintainers of environments and we try to make our employees realize the importance of that and give it a level of respect that, that something of that magnitude deserves. Mm -hmm. 
So you made a, a, an interesting um, a statement there or a characterization. I think it's really one of the things that is uh, a key underpinning of, of a lot of this, this challenge that we see today, and that is the employee is a commodity. And I think that, um, you know, especially good business people, good people that know how to run a business effectively and to make a good profit and to um, do customer service and things, they, they tend to overlook sometimes the importance of the employee. And I think that it wasn't that long ago where, especially in the service industry, it was kind of a perspective of, well, you'll either do what I want the way I want it, when I want it and follow my rules, or I've got 15 people waiting in the hall that are willing to step in and do the job. And it's just, you know, that in essence is essentially, you know, that's like uh, the commodities market, right? There's more of you where you came from. I can just go back there and, and get more. And that's significantly changed and is, is certainly different today. So, you know, what would be your uh, suggestions, I would say. I mean, you, 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 I know you, I know you know a lot of restaurant owners. I know you know a lot of other people in the service industry. You know, when, when you get guys get together and, uh, you know, have a steak and a beer and talk about your challenges, what are, what are you trying to impress on each other on how to, how to deal with that, that circumstance? I think one thing that a lot of business owners miss, miss is that you have to create a culture I have a culture here at the night shift and it comes from the way we've treated our folks since we started. And that culture is that we, we, we care about the work we're doing. We care about each other's backs. If, if you come here as an employee and you don't want to, and, and you don't want to wear your night shift shirt and, and do the best you can every time you go out to clean, you're not going to fit in very well. So there's a bit of peer pressure here. And, and the folks here, I have, this is, this is a cleaning company. I have folks that have been here, a lot of people, well over 25 years, mm -hmm. many people. And, and that's very rare in this industry. They love what they do. They, they're proud of what they do. When we receive accolades from our clients, they go to my employees because I didn't go clean them but I get the accolades. So we are, we are always sure to pass them on to the, to the employees responsible for the fine work out there. So I think if you create a culture like that, a, a new employee or say a new piece of commodity, if you wanna call a, a, a new, let's say you view it as a commodity and, and you got this new person in the door, if they don't care and they don't share that culture that you've established, then they're going to realize, wow, you know, I don't, I don't fit in too well here. I, maybe I'll try a little harder. Uh, another uh, I, example of where the culture comes in. I was in one of my favorite Italian restaurants last week. I, I felt, I felt bad. I was sitting in the bar area. It wasn't very busy. There was two bartenders. A, a man about forty came in with probably his mom, and they sat at the bar unacknowledged, ungreeted, for about five to ten minutes. And then they got up and left. And where I was sitting from my vantage point, I could tell that no one even knew that they left. No, none, no one who worked at this restaurant ever even realized, wow, we just lost a client. Mm -hmm. they, they, they came, sat, waited, and left. And no one even registered, oh my gosh, we just messed up. Yeah. It was crazy. I wanted to talk to the owner of the 
the manager, but I did not at the time, but it was, it was so simple. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a Dunkin' Donuts. There's several different, well, I'm not going to pick on any particular ones, but I've been in, I've been in stores where they're very busy, but someone behind the counter will look at me and say, I'll be right with you, sir. Yeah. And otherwise they don't say anything. No one looks at you. They're walking back and forth. It's nice. I don't mind waiting, but it's nice to be acknowledged. We see right. you. Yeah. You know, this bar that the restaurant I was in last week had one person said to the, that man and his mom, we'll be right with you, sir. Thanks for coming. You know, we'll, we'll, oh, I'm sorry. I'm busy. I'll be right with you. Here, here's a water. Nothing. Right. So it's uh, I think it's a culture that you can you can get in place. It's not easy to get in place. You can't just decide, OK, I want everyone to care about their work. Right. You got to treat them well. You got to do it over a long period of time when they realize, wow, this is, it, the, the, my veterans here realize this is a nice place to work. So if they all realize it, that mentality will be imparted onto the newer folks as they come in. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of the interesting things, uh, again, in, in my business of, of leadership development and, and training, uh, that C word, culture, um, is one of the ones that it, it always comes back around to that. It always comes back around to the culture of an organization is critical to any success, both from a business standpoint or from a, uh, a you know, an environment standpoint, just um, people you enjoying going it, to work. Not to interrupt you, but that, that has to start at the top. They, yep. Everyone has to see that you have that mentality. You, you can't, you gotta walk the walk. And if you don't have that culture, then it's not going to trickle down because yeah, and then, they have to believe in, in you and they have to believe that what they do is, is not just, you know, you're not just going through the motions. If you, if you put a culture in that says, Hey, if you, if you do this work, you're going to get a bonus of some sort or a perk. And then that perk doesn't happen. That culture is never going to be cultivated. It, it, it takes time and it takes consistency, but it, it, it can happen. Yeah. And, you know, I'll be honest, one of the things that I, I love to hear you talking about is, especially in the context of that starting at the top, um, I do have some experience, especially even in our local community of some companies where, you know, what they're doing is coming to groups like, like ours and saying, hey, uh, you know, I want you to instill this new culture in my company that's going to keep people engaged. But, oh, by the way, I'm going to sit here and still ridicule the the commodities and I'm still going to, you know, not respect the people that are working here. You know, I want you to instill it underneath me and I'm not going to change. And basically the feedback is then it's not going to change. Um, as you said, it starts at the top and it has to be something that, and the other thing is it's not instantaneous. There, there is not a culture pill that you can take that, that changes things. Um, and sometimes time. it, it, it takes a dramatic effort. And my, uh, honestly, my biggest concern with a lot of companies in the current environment is that, um, nobody is willing to commit to that long haul. Nobody's willing to commit. They want a, an easy fix. They want a, uh, a simple seminar that they can give to their leaders. And that's going to be the thing that changes it all. And I got when, news when for you. When you say no. Not going to yeah. happen. Yeah, you're right. It takes time. And, and it really needs to start at the top. Because they have to know they're backed up. And 
But it can yep. be little things. I, I'll give you one little thing. We, we have uh, company shirts that these folks were wearing. And at one time I went out and bought a whole bunch of company shirts when we first started doing a uniform, if you will. And um, they hated their shirts but, and I picked them out. So I said, well, how about you all pick out? What, what do you want to wear? So, you know, some, I, I would imagine some bosses would say, oh, I'm going to design what my shirt wants to look. I, I had my logo on it. I, I didn't, really didn't care what it looked like as long as it was professional. Yeah. And they wanted, you know, they wanted light. They wanted some T-shirts and they wanted light polos. So we went out and got them. They love them. They wear them. You know, we got different colors. I got purple. Um, on jobs where we have a big staff, we have that they all wear the same color. But if they're out on their own and they want to wear a hot pink or a safety yellow, <laughs> they wear them and they're proud of them and they designed them. So just something like that simple. It, it seems like nothing, but if, if they designed it, it means something to them. So, you know, you, why, why do I have to fight my ego to say, hey, someone wants to wear their shirt, not yours. Okay, right. go ahead. Yeah, and that is <clears throat> such a uh, uh, an important principle in especially today's work environment, right, is that people want to feel like they have a voice. And that's such a transition. I mean, it's interesting for me that you've, you've had this same business for 44 years, right? So you've, you've seen a transition from a perspective of the workforce and, and a, a perspective of the workforce and um, the nature, even the, uh, the the supply, if you will, of the of the commodity of the employees, um, you know, not that we want to treat them like a commodity, but you know, it is a um, it is a service industry job where it's not like uh, it takes somebody a lot of schooling or or college to to get into it, right? Um, those transitions over time have have really shifted to where um, what we used to have to do for you know, kind of as, uh, you know, the, the dreaded Jack Welch perspective of the top 10%. Um, we have to treat everybody like that. Now we have to appreciate everybody like that. Um, we really should have been appreciating everybody like that back then as well. But, uh, you know, it, it just becomes very uh, more, much more of a, of a focus for us today. So with that in mind, I mean, 44 years behind you, where do you go from here? And what do you see as the vision for um, where the company goes and, and how it sustains and, and what's going to be kind of the, the leadership. Uh, I'm not going to uh, assume that there's transitions in the future, but obviously, you know, neither of us are getting any younger. So uh, what, what do you see as the future for the night shift? That is the million dollar question right there. Um, right now we're in a holding pattern. I, I have a few of a few children, or not children anymore, young adult children. My brother has a few, so you never know where that company's going. Um, we're growing, we're, the growth is steady. The number of manage, management positions in our company from long-term employees, they're way up. So I think right now we're, we're really content that we're supporting a lot of, a lot of families and we're where um, everybody's enjoying being here. So as far as the future, I would say it's a bit of a holding pattern right now. <laughs> we like that we like the growth. We like we like our employee base, and for now we're going to just keep doing what we do. So I, as we uh, as as I wrap these things up, I usually like to give you kind of a uh, a, 
a free stage, if you will, to kind of share any of your um, favorite stories from the past or, or favorite lessons that you've learned or, or anything that you just like to, um, you know, pass on to any of the listeners, as, as I think I, I told you um, in the, uh, in the invitation to this, it's, it's really um, tracking the statistics. It's really kind of a, a diverse group that, that tend to listen to these. Um, some employees or, or, or leaders that are kind of uh, at the same stage of life as us and some that are uh, just starting out. Um, so any, any words of wisdom or any, any kind of really neat or enjoyable stories that were specifically impactful or influential to you that you want to share before we wrap up? Wow, I have, I have several that I would love, but the number one theme, my, my brother and I always wanted to write a book when we were younger about being uh, the, the advantages of being young and starting a business. I could never figure out, to me, it seemed easy. We've been at this 44 years. I feel like I've never had a job, Ron. I've worked very hard, my brother has too, but when, when, it's, when you do something from scratch, you, you, you just, that's your, what you do. It's, it's not like a job. And I always wondered, you know, why, why does anybody go get a job? I'm, you know, it's not, it's certainly, I'm, try, I'm simplifying it when I say, just go start a business, you know, right. but, but um, there are huge advantages for youth starting business. And I, I do some college class lectures from time to time. And this is one of the things I love to impart on the, the students, be it, be it high school students or college students, when, when you're young, one of, the, one of the reasons that somebody, let's say in their 40s, may not be able to start a business if they have a great idea, because they probably have a house, a mortgage payment, a car payment, a couple kids at home. So it's a big risk for them in their 40s or 50s to say, you know what, I got this great idea. I'm going to quit my well-paying job yeah. and start up this little wild idea I have. Very yeah. difficult to do. But when you're 20, most 20-year-olds don't have a mortgage payment or two kids and a car payment. Some, but not all. So if you have an idea and you swing and miss, you still got 40 more years of work ahead of you. You could try something else. Yeah. So I call it, I don't know if it's an opportunity cost or, or a risk cost, but I think the risk is a lot less when you're a kid. You start up if it if it works, you can grow slowly. If it doesn't, you you try. You, you're not foregoing a giant salary that you're already into a big, a big company for. Second advantage of being young in business, when we were when we were kids, we got some work just because we were kids. So, for example, my father played racquetball. There used to be on the Vestal Parkway Ken Wilson Chevrolet. They were there yeah. for I don't know how many years, 40, 50 years maybe. And Ken Wilson played racquetball with my father. And my father would be bragging to Ken, hey, my boys, they have this little business. And he said, what is it? He said, well, they're cleaning offices. So Ken said, send them over. So we went over and that was a huge job to us at the time. We couldn't imagine cleaning, but he hired us to clean Ken Wilson Chevrolet. And for, for 40 years, I would see Ken and he would say, yeah, that was your first account. And I, I never had the heart to tell him. He passed away several years ago. He was a wonderful man. I never had the heart to tell him. You weren't the first, Ken, but he was very kind. But he did it because he was. We were young, and 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 we we used to screw up, believe it or not, from time to time. And we yeah. people would cut us breaks. Well, they're just kids, you know. They'll learn. Yeah. 
Uh, one for a, sure. for an early company that must have been a, a pretty i mean that was a pretty iconic building in this area to oh it was iconic to, uh, sure. yeah big and i was a window washer swooping roof it, yeah oh, it was the shape of a bird that that was the shape of a flying a soaring bird that building yeah and it was floor to ceiling glass i was a window washer i'm still yeah. pretty good with a squeegee but uh <laughs> when i'm in new york city a lot and i see people wash their windows and i i ask them if i could slap some glass there was, there was a kid washing windows on um, South Washington Street. He, he's got his own business there. And he was <laughs> he was hacking away at the glass. And, and I got out of my truck. I had my suit on. I said, do you mind if I give you a pointer? He said, I love it. And I gave him a window washing lesson. So that was fun. I love washing wow. windows. But, um, yeah, so youth, youth and business is huge, huge advantages. People want to help you out. They want to give you a break. They cut you a break if you mess up. Um, the opportunity cause you, you know, you're not for usually not foregoing some big salary. So I, I love a kid trying to start a business, um, service business in particular, you can, if you want to start a paint business, you don't need to go hire a bulldozer and a backhoe. It's not going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. You get, you get, you could start with painting one person's kitchen. Right. So what would one room cost you to paint? You get a couple of gallons of paint and a scraper and a paintbrush off you go and and do it great now now you got a, a a fan a client to refer okay well now maybe you could do two bedrooms in a hallway so you could slowly build a service industry you could mow one lawn then two lawns then four then maybe eight and get your buddy to start helping you and all you need is a lawnmower and a trimmer so i think there's great opportunity for for youth to start businesses and do it on a low budget without too much risk. So I, I love that. That's one of the things I would impart on you. Right. I had one of my all-time favorite stories. I was down south playing golf in the Myrtle Beach area, which is a resort. When you go to resort golf, for your listeners who know about resort golf, it's all about service. They come to your car, grab your clubs, take care of you. Then when you're done, they wash your clubs and they interact a little bit. You give them a tip and you go on. So we went to this golf course one day and um, we, we showed up, I was with a friend and we didn't know where we were. We we're looking around in the parking lot about 50 yards away. was an older gentleman with his feet up on a golf cart, sitting in a golf cart with his feet up. He had a name badge on. So, uh, we're looking around dumbfounded and he said, can I help you? Didn't move, just shouted across the parking lot. And I said, well, where's the pro shop? Right over there. He pointed. So we went in and we, we, bought our golf round and we came out and our clubs are still sitting in the bag stand. And uh, I said, well, where's the carts? And he said, here. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I said, I'm not, I was teasing him. I said, it's a long story, but it's almost done. We went and played, <laughs> we played, we played golf. We came, we got done. As we were driving by this guy to go out to golf, he said, have a great day. It was a beautiful day. And he says, have a great day. And I said, hey, if two Italians can't have fun on a day like this, who can? And he says, three. And I said, what? Three Italians. And I said, oh, you're Italian? He said, yeah. And I said, where are you from? I'm from Michigan. I came down here to retire. I said, oh, you like, oh, I hate it. Sucks, I make five bucks an hour. This was years ago. How about, he complained about his job. So we said, okay, have a nice day. We went and played golf. We came back. He's still sitting in the car with his feet up. End of day, we loaded our clubs in our car, drove away. The next day we went to another club. This big fella comes running over 
grabs our club. He goes, I got you guys covered. He loaded up our clubs, sent us to the pro shop. We came out and he said, okay, here's the first tee right here. Number seven, be careful. There's a dip in front of the green. There's a creek. You won't be able to see it. I'll see you after nine. We came in after nine. He's there again. He said, okay, listen, number 12, there's a, there's a blind shot. Aim for the big pine tree. I'll see you when you're done. We got done. He ran up to our cart, grabbed our golf clubs, threw them in a bucket. Don't move a muscle, he says. Starts cleaning our clubs. Puts them back. He says, where are you boys been? Have you played this club? Did you try this? Did you try this? Okay. Hey, nice seeing you. Haven't I? We each tipped them 10 bucks. So then it hit me that these two guys, the one we saw the day before with his feet on the cart, and this guy who cleaned our clubs for 20 bucks in three minutes, had the same job. Right. They both worked at a golf course. And I said to the second guy, you do pretty well here, don't you? He said, I worked 260 days last year and I feed my family well. So it was a lesson for me. This was many years ago. But if you're going to do something, do it. Do it well. Do it well and do it right. These two guys had the same job. One guy's making $5 an hour. And this guy, we tipped him. We couldn't tip him. We couldn't wait to tip the second guy. But, you know, it's an attitude. So I don't, I don't know that he was showing me leadership, but his behavior certainly was leadership for his family. And I'll bet you that guy's, if he's got kids, I'll bet you they're, they're workers because uh, it was impressive. So that's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, it's I interesting have, in, uh, in today's environment that we have um, such a focus on what's broadly characterized as employee engagement. And, um, you know, as with a lot of things, the, the pendulum tends to swing back and forth and, you know, occasionally you're in the middle where everything is really balanced, but most times you're swung one way or the other. And, and today we have a lot of talk about how, um, you know, employee engagement is the employee's responsibility. Right. And so what you're talking about is essentially that's, that's a component of it. And that person was obviously motivated and and the other was not as motivated, but I, I would bet the backstory to that is that that individual had an environment where that was recognized. And obviously he's getting tips and, and making good money, but I bet you the other guy is just kind of left out there. He doesn't feel like he's a part of anything. He's just, you know, okay, you're our guy to sit out there in the cart and uh, you know, he's, he's not engaged and, and, the one course was probably connected and in and in influential in terms of the they both were influential in terms of the way that people acted i would you i would know, you know that's guess. a great i never ron i've told that story a million times and i never thought of it from the leadership see you're you're in the leadership business so this is you're a natural buddy but i never thought of it from the leadership standpoint that who are these, each of these fellows' bosses? So, right. for example, the first guy, if that was my guy, I would have went out there one day and said, uh, listen, Joe, watch how I handle this next group that's coming in. Yeah. Maybe you could do a little better with tips if we do it this way. I never, in all the times I've told that story, I always thought, wow, this guy was great and this guy wasn't. But I I never thought of it from a leadership standpoint. So thank you for yep. pointing that out. Um, yeah, it goes back to that thing that we were talking about before, the, the culture question, right? Um, yes. Some organizations, they figure, well, I'm going to hire you and it's your responsibility to create this culture that I want and I'm not going to do anything to instill it. 
and uh, that's not how it works. You've, it, like you said earlier, very appropriately, it starts at the top and it has to permeate down. I'm, you know, there's a, um, there's a, a workshop that uh, a, f a friend of a colleague of mine and, and I do quite frequently in different companies. And um, we tend to do it with first line leaders, maybe middle level leaders, you know, managers of people, managers of people that manage people. Um, and they're very successful, very impactful. Um, they're just in some cases, life-changing kinds of, uh, of activities, but far and away, the number one comment that we get when we do post workshop feedback sessions and things like that is, so when's my manager going to get this training? When is one of the people above me, when are they going to go through this focus on being empathetic and being, uh, understanding and and being servant oriented wonder because this is not what I feel right this is what you're telling me you want me how you want me to be with the people that I lead but when do I start getting led like that right, right. and uh it it's it's pervasive and so it's uh it's it's very refreshing to see that that you have an organization that's uh, been around a long time but has really instilled that value and and committed to that value of of uh, building that kind of culture. And obviously the, the success is evident. So congratulations. Well, thank you. It's been a long road. <laughs> yeah, well, when you start that young, you can still be young <laughs> like you and, uh, and, and still at it. All right, any other final uh, thoughts before we wrap up here? I think that the things I do to lead here at the night shift come pretty naturally to me based on my upbringing and, and um, my family that I grew up in, my older brother. I think uh, it seems easy to me and comes naturally, but I, I think it, it stems from having the right people. We, we really have some really fine folks here at the night shift. I, I'm so proud of the, the cast I have. The, when they go out into the community, I, the feedback I get is remarkable. And I'm, I'm so proud of the, of the people I have and the effort they put in that makes me, makes me look good. So yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna continue to focus on the leadership and I appreciate what you're doing, Ron. Thank you. Cool, thank you. Well, thank you again, Dave. And thanks everyone for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the Natural Leader Podcast, check out each new episode and let your friends know about it too. You can find relevant links from this discussion to in the caption for this episode. And if you'd like to contact me regarding this or any other episode, my contact information can be found on the Unleashed Potential website, unleash-potential.org. Until the next episode, I'll see you.